know, any children kindergarten to second grade. And while our children are being dismissed, I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. If you're using one of those uh, pew Bibles in the pew rack in front of you and you're unfamiliar with the location of Isaiah, it's on page 701. Isaiah chapter 28, page 701. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 19 this morning. Isaiah 28, 14 to 19. If you're just uh, new with us this Sunday, we'd like to welcome you to the church. And we are in the middle of a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, working our way through this book picking up some of the highlights, of which there are too many to pick up, really. So we're doing our best. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 to 19. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you because you are our refuge. You are our foundation upon which we build our lives. We thank you for the fact that we can come to you in prayer and bring you all of our concerns. We thank You that You're a real God, that that prayer is not simply some kind of self-therapy that makes us feel better, but we are talking to the Creator of the universe. And prayer makes things happen because You are really there, God, and You really hear our prayers. And Lord, Jesus Christ has died for us on the cross, and therefore we can come into Your presence and ask with boldness and confidence. Lord, we want to thank You for the way You are taking care of us, taking care of this congregation. I thank You, Lord, that Terry Tupper is here in the sanctuary with us this morning, that she made it through her surgery safely. Thank you, Lord, for answering that prayer that we made in this very place a couple weeks ago. Lord, we want to continue to pray for uh, Pastor Seth Rogers and Bob Ells as they're uh, doing a short-term mission trip in Kazakhstan. Lord, keep them safe, bless them, and protect them. Father, we pray for um, this nation. We pray for our leaders, for our presidents, our senators, our congressmen, our governors. God, I pray that they might understand that they are not in control, but that you are in control. That they might humble themselves before you and that they might be men and women who get on their knees daily to seek your wisdom in governing this nation. Lord, protect our troops overseas. Bring peace in the Middle East and other parts of the world where there's trouble. Lord, bring our loved ones back home safely, we pray. And now, Lord, as we uh, open up your word, as we study the Bible, we do pray that you would speak to our hearts. We believe this is the word of God. And we open the Bible with eager expectation, unlike any other book that we open. Because we know that when we open it, the Holy Spirit speaks, that the Bible reaches out and grabs us by the soul and speaks things to us. And so, Lord, speak to us. Teach us this morning. We look forward to what you have to say to us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, it's, uh, it's tough to be a Christian in New England. It's a challenge. Uh, it's tough to be a Christian in New England. And when I say Christian, I mean a real Christian. Uh, a, a biblical Christian. A Christian who really has trusted in Christ as their Savior. A Christian who is really trying to live their life for Christ every day in the workplace, at school, in front of your family and friends. Uh, a person who is not ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ. It's really tough to do that. Uh, you will receive uh, strange looks People treat you differently when it gets out that you're kind of serious about this whole Jesus thing. And people look at you different, they act different. Sometimes they scoff at you and mock you. And I try to figure this out. 
uh, coming in from another part of the country to here and trying to get the vibe here in New England. It's, it's been interesting to learn. Um, and it's funny because most New Englanders have a church background. That's kind of the ironic twist. I mean, most New Englanders were either raised in a church, they went to CCD or Sunday school, and uh, most New Englanders go to church somewhat. I mean, at least Christmas and Easter, right? So it's not that people are totally anti-church, it, but so, so there's this kind of Christian uh, uh, atmosphere in, a, in some kind of uh, nominal sense that undergirds New England culture. And yet, when you take a step out of that sort of nominalism, that cultural, generic Christian understanding, and, and you say, I'm going to really follow Christ. I'm going to be serious about it. I really trust Christ as my Savior. I really want to model my life after what He teaches in His Word. People look at you funny and they go, like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, come on. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, we all believe in God and everything, but let's not get too serious about this. I mean, don't, don't become one of those, you know, those people who are really over the edge there. And, and there's, there's often um, harassment and, and funny looks and jabs and comments that will come your way if you're really going to follow Christ seriously in this culture. Uh, whenever people come up from the South and move here to New England, and you know, they're looking for a church, and they're like, Pastor, I just came from Georgia, Mississippi, you know, and I'm here, and, and I found this Baptist church, and, and I'm like, I'm so glad you're here. But please understand one thing. You're a missionary here. <laughs> and as long as you understand that, New England's going to be great. As long as you understand that you're a missionary. If you're really going to live for Christ, you're going to stand out and there's going to be some awkwardness. I was talking to a lady this week and uh, she uh, was telling me about her workplace and um, the challenges she faces there. She's very open to the fact that she's a follower of Christ and, and people harass her about it. She says there's this one guy in particular in the, the cafeteria where she works who always is bugging her. And he says every day she comes to, in the cafeteria to get something there, he will always say to her the same thing in a very smug, condescending way. He'll say, so, how's the Lord today? And he's been saying it for years. And she goes, you know, the first time I heard it, it was like, ha, 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 ha. And the second time, ha, ha. But three years later, she says, I'm running out of comebacks. I, I don't know what to say, but relentlessly, how's the Lord today? And if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to get that, especially in this culture. And you just have to accept it. There's going to be scoffing. There's going to be ridicule. But this has been the case for God's people down through the ages. When you really stand for Christ, when you really follow God and step out of a nominal, cultural, generic kind of faith, you know, like I'm an American, therefore I guess I'm a Christian. But when you step out of that and really follow Christ, there's going to be funny looks and strange comments. That's how it was in Isaiah's day. Isaiah was being harassed. And of all, uh, from all people, he was being harassed by the leadership. Look at verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah is responding to his critics. He says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. And who are the scoffers? Who rule this people in Jerusalem. So the leaders of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, were scoffing against Isaiah and his message. They were mocking him, they were ridiculing him, and, and teasing him for what he was saying. Uh, and, and for good reason. Isaiah had a message that he was preaching. He was telling the people to trust God. That was his message. Trust God. Don't trust the Egyptians. Don't trust other nations. Don't trust your own wisdom. Trust God. Because uh, just to paint the historic context of this situation, uh, it, Israel was facing some real persecution at this time. In fact, if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, just to illustrate this, if you've been here for several Sundays, you're kind of up to speed on this, but just in case you're not, uh, Israel at this time, and Judah in particular, was underneath the threat from the Assyrians. Look at page two of the sermon notes, you'll see a map. The Assyrians were the superpower at the time of Isaiah, and they were continually extending their tentacles and their reach into all parts of the world. If you see this map here, this is Palestine, and if you can imagine the map extended up here to what's today northern Iraq, that was the heart of the Assyrian Empire. That's where Nineveh was. And from there, the Assyrians had branched down into Babylonia and down into Elam and northward and eastward, and then they'd also gone west and south down into Palestine. So if you look at this map, everything you see in dark gray is Assyrian real estate that they've taken by conquest. 
And now all that's left is Judah. You see Judah down at the bottom? And there's Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is right on the border of Assyrian territory. So the, the tide of Assyrian aggression had continued to rise and rise and rise. And now it was right up to Judah's neck. What are they going to do? What are, the Assyrians are here. And Isaiah had a solution. Isaiah's solution was, trust God. We've got to trust God as a nation. And, and the leaders of, of the nation were like, are you kidding me? That's your foreign policy? Trust God? <laughs> Look, this is the real world. You can't just have trust God as your foreign policy. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a strategy. You've got to have some kind of scheme. And so what the, the leaders did at that time, we know from elsewhere in Isaiah, is that they put their trust not in God, but in Egypt. And there was a pro-Egyptian movement among the leaders. That became the foreign policy that developed at this time. So you know where Egypt is. It's, if you come down here, this is where the uh, Nile River Delta is, if you can imagine that. So here's the Assyrians coming in from the north. And rather than standing their ground and trusting God, they reached down south to the Egyptians and tried to make some deals with them in order to save themselves. They were trusting in Egypt rather than in God. And then they started mocking Isaiah. In fact, we have a little bit of their mocking in verse 9, if you look back at the text. This is a quote. Isaiah is quoting the mockers. They said, Who is it he, Isaiah, is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? Look, Isaiah... This is baby talk. Trust God. I mean, look, life is more complex than that. We're adults. This is an adult world. International politics are complex. And your foreign policy is trust God. You know, save that for the kiddie sermon, okay, Isaiah? This is the real world where things are complex and they're not so black and white. And, and so we need to make some deals. We need to have plans. We need to be proactive. And we're going to trust Egypt instead of taking our stand and trusting in God. And they responded by mocking Isaiah and by ridiculing Isaiah for his beliefs. They were, in a sense, in that, that, that uh, periphery of nominal, generic, cultural faith. But yeah, we're the people of Israel. Sure, we follow the God of Israel. Doesn't everybody? But come on, when push comes to shove, let's get practical. We have to make some deals here. We've got we to gotta deal with this in worldly ways. And Isaiah was saying, no, don't just have a, a nominal kind of faith in God. Step out and really trust Him. Really be an Israelite. Really put your faith in the living God. So in verse 14, Isaiah turns the tables on the scoffers and he scoffs at the scoffers. This is kind of Isaiah poking fun back at the people who've been poking fun at him. He says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, and then he quotes them, We have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave we've made an agreement. In other words, a covenant means it's like a peace treaty. So it's like, yeah, yeah we made a deal with death. Death isn't going to come to us. We're, we're safe from death. Then they said, with an, when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Now, did the leaders of Jerusalem literally make a deal with death? Did they literally go around saying, our refuge is a lie? I don't think so. I think what Isaiah is doing here is he's engaging in a form of speech of, of mockery. He's, he's kind of like putting words back in their mouth. And it, I think of this as like a political cartoon. That's what verse 15 is. You know in political cartoons where the, they exaggerate the features of the person and they make them a little bit absurd? But it's to prove a point. It's to show, to illustrate the absurdity of some political position. And I think that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's painting a verbal political cartoon to just show how absurd the leaders are by trusting in Egypt instead of God. And, and he makes it sound as if they think they're indestructible. He, he reveals their true heart attitude. We have entered into a covenant with death. With the grade we've made an agreement. You know, we've built our refuge. But it's lies and deceptions. It's Egypt. It's a sandcastle. It's not going to stand. It's just made out of sand. I love that phrase. We've entered into a covenant with death. With the grave, we've made an agreement. We're indestructible. We'll never get hurt. It kind of reminds me of the attitude I had when I was a teenager. <laughs> I had the same attitude. I just felt like nothing could hurt me. I, I was indestructible. I was 16 years old. I made a covenant with death, you know, so to speak. Nothing could hurt me. And I did so many stupid things when I was in a teenager. I don't know if any of you did too, but I did so many stupid things. Things that were just reckless. But I, I thought, well, I can't get hurt because, you know, I'm 16 and I'm indestructible. I remember my friends and I would go out hiking in the desert 
I grew up out west, as some of you know, in Las Vegas, and we'd go out hiking in the desert, climbing the rocks, and, and we'd just go rock climbing. We didn't have ropes. We didn't have training, actually. We just were 16. And we'd be like, oh, dude, rock, you know, you know, up on it. And I, I, we got in some really hairy situations. I, it's only by the grace of God that I didn't plummet on several occasions that I can remember. Um, and I remember this one time, my friend and I, we went up this gorge, and, and it, was, it got narrower and narrower. It was really cool. And uh, in, in fact, the, the walls got so narrow that you could touch either side. They went straight up about 40 feet. And so, you know, my friend did the logical thing. He said, I'm going up. So we're like, all right. And so, you know, he starts, you know, doing this up the side of the thing. And he gets up 30, 40 feet above hard rock. And he's up there. And then we didn't, of course, think this through. But at the top of the the thing, it it widened (laughs) until it was beyond reach. And he got up there. And I remember seeing his arms starting to shake from the exertion. And he got up to the top. And then he looks around. And we both realized that he can't keep doing this indefinitely unless he can stretch out his arms or something. And I remember his eyes just getting wide as the adrenaline kicked in. And uh, I don't remember how he got out of that. He did make it, though. He made it. Uh, you know, you, you do stupid things like that when you're a teenager. You know, you, you go down the road by your house that's a quarter mile long at night with your lights off and floor it up to 90 miles an hour in your car. I mean, not that I ever did that, but, you know, that's the kind of things teenagers do. Because you're like, I'm indestructible. I can do anything. And uh, that's that kind of attitude that the, that the leaders of Israel had. Oh, come on, Isaiah. Quit being such a fuddy-duddy. All this trust God talk. I mean, just please. We're fine. Nothing's going to touch us. Unfortunately, that kind of Superman uh, delusion goes from teenage years. It can go into adulthood, too. Now, we, when you get into adulthood, you're not so much confident in your physical body because you feel yourself getting old. You know you're getting you know, physically changing and getting weaker over time. And, and so it's not that. It, it's more, um, I think a lot of times it's success and stability that we get in life. You get a degree. You get a degree from a good college. You get a career going. You make some money. Then you make some more money. And you spin off a business and that does really well. And you're like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And you have a house and you get a bigger house. And then you can get the, the car you want. And then you start developing all your hobbies, your golfing, biking, skiing, fishing, rock climbing, you know, whatever hobby it is. You, you develop your, your circle of social friends. You get into a good town and you get into the right circle. You start meeting people. And pretty soon life is good. And you're like, you know, I'm fine. And I'm sure there's some people out there who need God as a crutch. But I, I'm doing really good. And that becomes a kind of refuge, the success that we have. And we begin to think that we really don't need God. I, I know one guy, I, I think of a guy that I know who, uh, uh, I see him driving down the street a lot, and he's always got a new toy. He's kind of a toy of the month guy. He's obviously doing very well in business because of all the toys he has. You know, one day he zooms by, boom, Harley. You know, the next day, boom, new shiny 4x4. That puts a pool in the backyard. And, you know, next day, boom, he has a Porsche Boxster. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, as he drives by. <laughs> and... You know, and, and not, not that it's sinful to drive a Porsche Boxster. It's not like Porsche Boxster is evil or something. I mean, I would like to drive one if the church, you know, ever wanted to spring for one. I'm, I, I would be gracious enough to accept. But, <laughs> so it's not like that's evil, like if people drive a nice car, therefore they're, you know, sinful or something like that. Um, it's, you know what it is? It's that success and prosperity anesthetize us to our spiritual needs. That's the problem. It's that when I'm doing really well, I'm numbed to my need for God. I still need God as much as ever, but I just am deluded into thinking that I don't. And I think, well, I'm fine. But the problem is, those things don't last. You wake up one morning and you're on top of the world, and then you wake up and your marriage is dead. Or you wake up and your kids have grown and you don't really know them and they're raising hell, and you're like, are those my kids? How did they get like that, you know? I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens. Or one day the money does run out and the job changes and the, you know, what, all kinds of things happen. You know how it is. It's ruthless out there in the work world. You can't count on the, the position you have or the career. Nothing is secure. And, and it's gone. But even if you somehow manage to grab the brass ring and you hold on to it your whole life and you never really have one of these major downturns, it, ultimately we die. That's the end of the road. We go into the big wood chipper and that's where all of our stuff that we've built up goes. It's gone. It's gone. Uh, there's a parable about the wood chipper of death. It's in Luke chapter 12. Look at your sermon notes again. Luke 
Jesus told this parable. I love this one. It says in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, page 3 of the sermon notes, And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's that, that kind of false refuge, that sandcastle. You know, man, don't get all hooked into that religion stuff. I mean, you know, go to church every once in a while, but, you know, just take life easy. You're doing fine. Things are good. You have nothing to worry about. You're prosperous. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Jesus concludes with this explanation. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Ultimately, we face death, and it doesn't matter how successful we've been in our lives, we die, and then we stand before God. When you die, you're not reincarnated, you don't get another chance, you don't come back as a something else. That's it. You die, and then you stand before God. The book of Hebrews says, it is destined for man once to die, and then to judgment. And then we stand before God and we, we answer for our lives. And, and what am I going to protect myself with in the presence of God at that point? What, what am I going to use to shield myself? What refuge am I going to have? As it says in Isaiah chapter 28, going back to that text, verse 17, God says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb. God will measure us against justice and righteousness, His justice and righteousness. And hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. Water will overflow your hiding place. All that stuff we found security in. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. None of these things last. They're not evil in and of themselves. Prosperity is not evil. Prosperity is a gift from God. We should thank God for prosperity in our lives. But we should also be careful not to build our lives on it as if that's what life is about. As if that's the, the meaning and purpose of life is that prosperity because it can come and go. But those things don't last. They can be washed away. The only sure foundation is the foundation that God provides because only God can endure. Only God lasts. Only God is a sure foundation for this life and the life to come. And that's what he says in verse 16. God presents an alternative to worldly refuges. Verse 16, he says, So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Now we have this image of God as a builder. He says, yeah, your refuges don't work. All these things you're trusting in, Egypt or success or prosperity, whatever, that's not a refuge. Let me show you a refuge. I'm going to build a new one. And God is this builder. He drops this cornerstone in place. He goes, this is it. This is the beginning of the new refuge. And anyone who trusts in this cornerstone won't be dismayed, unlike other things that we trust in. Now, the cornerstone was very important in the ancient world. Uh, you know, building practices obviously are a little bit different today, but the cornerstone was the beginning of the foundation. And when they laid that cornerstone, it was really a, almost a religious ceremony because that cornerstone was not only the the first part of the foundation, but it was also uh, the, the brick from which they took their bearings for the rest of the building. So they would lay this cornerstone in place, then they would stretch out their plumb lines from the cornerstone, and that's what determined the shape and the, the orientation of the building. So it had to be a good one. It had to be solid stone, it had to be square, it had to be level, it had to be a good stone. And, and as I said, it was such an important event, laying the cornerstone, that it took on religious significance in the ancient world. There was usually a religious ceremony attached to the laying of the cornerstone. Uh, in fact, in, in idolatrous and pagan nations, they would often do sacrifices. They would sacrifice animals. Sometimes they'd sacrifice human beings in some of these pagan nations. And archaeologists have actually found ancient cornerstones, lifted them up, and there's people's bones underneath because they would do these, these ceremonies. So, you know, this was an important stone. So the idea is, if you got a good cornerstone you got a good building, and it's secure. Bad cornerstone, bad building, not secure. That's the imagery here. God says, I'm going to lay a cornerstone. 
All the stuff you're building on doesn't work. I'm going to lay one. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. This thing is square, it's level, it's solid, and the one who trusts will never be dismayed. So God lays before the people a choice. Who will you trust? Will you build your life and put your trust in Egypt or whatever? Or will it be the cornerstone that I lay? And by the very act of laying that cornerstone, God puts a choice in front of the people. They have to make a decision. They can't get around it. They can't bypass the cornerstone. It's right there. What will you do with it? Are you going to go past it or are you going to build on it? That's the choice that faces us. Now, this raises one question, I think, an interpretive question in terms of prophetic fulfillment. This is a prophecy. What's the cornerstone? What is the foundation upon which we build our lives? What is this stone that God is laying? Because obviously this is a metaphor. So what's, what's the real fulfillment? What is this pointing to? And what's interesting is that Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Romans and once in 1 Peter. And in every one of those instances, the New Testament authors see the fulfillment of the cornerstone in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the cornerstone is not a brick, it's a person. It's Jesus I don't want to look at all three of those. We don't really have time, but I'd like to just look at one. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament. One of those examples where the New Testament quotes this verse. It's on page 1201. 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1201. Look at uh, verse 4. 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone. And then here's the quote. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. God has laid a precious stone. It's Jesus. And it's precious. It's a good stone. It's Jesus is square. He's level. Everything else in this life is bent. Nothing else in this life is perfectly square. I'm a sinful person. All of us are sinful people. All of our families are slightly dysfunctional to some degree or another. Um, all of us live in, and work in offices that are a little bit off. There's always things wrong. Every church you'll ever attend is imperfect and has failures and flaws. Every government on the face of the earth experiences corruption. Everything in this world is bent or twisted or crooked in some way, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And God brought Him into this world. He fell from heaven to earth and came to save us. And He was perfectly square perfectly level, without sin, glorious, precious, chosen. And whoever puts their trust in Him will not be put to shame. The one who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. Not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And so God puts that stone right in front of us. And now we have a choice. What do we do with Christ? God's put it right in our face. He's put the stone right in front of our vision. What are we going to build our lives on? Will it be Christ? Or will it be anything else? And you have to make the choice. You can't get around it. You can't, there's no side path. There's big stones right in your way. That's where God put it. And either you build on Christ or you trip over Christ. That's what it says in verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. That's why we're singing all these songs. We're clapping our hands. You know, why, why do we clap our hands and sing and do all this stuff Sunday morning? Because Jesus is precious to us. I mean, he gives us something to sing about and live for. That's why we worship and sing. It's not just to kind of get ourselves kind of fired up emotionally and, you know, have a good time at church. It's because Christ is worthy. He's precious to us. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And, here's the verse I want you to look at, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You either trust Christ or you trip over Christ. One of the two. There's no in between. And so we have to decide. Will we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ both for this life and for eternity or not? Will I trust in Christ for my eternal salvation or will I trust in 
myself or my uh, efforts or my success in life or my attempts at being a good Baptist or a good Catholic or a good Presbyterian. You know, what, what is it that we trust in before God? Is it Christ or is it anything else out there? <clears throat> because someday I'm going to have to stand before God. That's the bottom line. Someday I will come to death. I cannot annul that agreement. Death will come and I will have to stand before God. And when I stand, actually I probably won't be standing before God. I'll probably be on my face groveling before holy, holy, holy God. And on that day, God will see right through me. I won't be able to put up any pretense. I won't be able to rationalize or explain or let me explain that little incident over there, God. No, no, no. It's all going to be laid bare before God. I will be completely naked before His gaze. God's burning eyes of judgment will see into the deepest recesses of my soul and of my mind. I won't be able to hide anything from Him. And on that day when I stand before, grovel before God on the judgment day, what am I going to protect myself with? Money? My career? Am I going to be able to point to my education? Well, God, wait, 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 I do have a master's degree. You know that, don't you? And I uh, graduated summa cum laude. You know, I'm just like, come on. I'm just going to be bare before Him. Am I going to bring to God my good deeds, quote-unquote? Am I going to bring to God my own attempts at morality? You know, there's this false idea out there that when you get to heaven, there's a balance. You heard this? One side's for your good deeds, one side's for your bad, and hopefully if your good outweigh your bad, then you're okay. That's not how it works. There's not a balance. There's a big yardstick. And the yardstick is, it's kind of like the rides when you go to an amusement park. You know, you have to stand, little kids have to stand against it, see if they're tall enough. And the yardstick is holiness. The yardstick is the glory of God, and I have to stand up against it and see if I measure up. That's how it works. And just in case you're kind of fuzzy on how the measure up thing works out, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, I don't even think we even start to measure up. God's holiness is the standard. And when God judges me by His holiness and righteousness and says, Jeremy, did you love me and worship me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I can't even give it a, a no. I'll just be like, <coughs> no, I haven't. What will I hold up before God? My, my attempts at religion? Can I come before God and, and claim, hey, look, I have special dispensation, I'm a pastor? Do you think my minister's robes can protect me from his burning gaze? Of course not. On that day, there is only one refuge. There is only one protection. The stone, Jesus Christ. The only thing I can say to God on that day is, Lord, I am a sinful man, but Christ died for me. That's it. Besides that, you are without hope. Christ is the cornerstone that God has provided. And so when people mock you and scoff you and say, you know, you just have God as a crutch, you're darn right. Yeah, Christ is my crutch. Fine, the cross is my crutch. There's nothing else that will do the trick on that day except for the blood of Jesus Christ. And so... Don't be ashamed to be Christians. Don't be sad when people act weird toward you and say rude things to you and, how's the Lord today? Or, you know, whatever. Be bold and say, man, I'll tell you what, I have Christ and I'm not ashamed of Him because on that day, He is my rock and my refuge and I will stand on Him regardless of what the rest of the world says. There's two men I'd like to close with sort of this little illustration I thought was really cool. It's an illustration about two guys on their deathbeds. They both died in the 18th century, and you've probably heard of both of them. One was Voltaire. He was a French philosopher. Not a real strong Christian, we'll just put it that way. Voltaire was uh, very hostile to the Christian faith. He wrote tracts against Christianity. He predicted that a hundred years hence, Christianity would be extinguished in the earth. He called the Bible a book of fairy tales. You know, he just constantly hostile to the Christian faith. Well, he died in 1778, and uh, on his deathbed, it, the story goes, that on his deathbed he was so upset and so in turmoil that people didn't go in the room because they just didn't want to be near the guy. And on his deathbed, he turned his face to the wall and yelled, I must die abandoned of God and of men. Those are his parting words. And there was a nurse there who apparently said, I would not for all the wealth of Europe I would not ever want to be near the bed of a dying infidel again. The experience was so horrible. 
Another picture, another deathbed. A guy named Matthew Henry. He died about 60 years earlier. Matthew Henry was a man who trusted his life to Christ. He was a pastor. He wrote a famous commentary series called Matthew Henry's, Henry's Commentaries on the Bible that is still good today. I, I use it when I study Isaiah. You know, 300 years later, it's still full of just goodies. And uh, on his deathbed, he said this, A life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. So do not be ashamed of Christ. Build your lives on Him, regardless of what the world may say, because Christ is the precious cornerstone of our faith. of uh, foreboding uncertainties in your own life. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. come to communion, we come to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. We come to take our stand on the precious cornerstone. We recognize that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that we have forgiveness for our sins and eternal life. And so this is a celebration of that. This bread symbolizes the body of Christ which was broken. This cup symbolizes the blood of Christ which was shed for us on the cross. And so for us as Christians, this is a time when we come together and and worship and celebrate and spend time with our Savior. This is a precious time for Christians. It's called communion because we commune with the Lord in a unique way at this time and worship Him and love Him and thank Him. So I ask the elders to join me here at the communion table as we remember the night before Jesus went to the cross. He was having a Passover Seder with His disciples and He took some of the matzah, some of the unleavened bread, and He gave it a new symbolic meaning. He broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. And uh, Rick, good enough, would you come and give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Shall we pray? Our Father and God, we come before you as humbly as we know how, with heads bowed and with hearts turned toward you. 
Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus, for the saving grace that he had toward us, for his being our cornerstone, for his being our uh, mark of our faith. We thank you for the extreme sacrifice that he went through, that um, we are able to be reconciled back to you through his broken body uh, on the cross. We thank you, dear Lord, in our humblest way, in Jesus' holy name. The elders uh, bring these elements around. I just encourage you to take this time to pray, to worship Christ, to confess your trust in Him, to confess your sins, to tell Christ how much you love Him. Spend this time in prayer. Christ is our cornerstone and our refuge and His body was broken so that we might be made whole. Let's eat together. And we remember that at the end of the Passover meal Jesus took a cup of wine and He gave it a new meaning as well. He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And ask the elders to join us here again. And um, Tim, would you give thanks for the shed blood of Christ on the cross? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your Son. 
we are lost without him. And we're so grateful that you made it possible for us to know him, to be uh, saved by him. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Let us put our faith in Jesus Christ and let's drink together. Would you stand and let's sing one more song before we go. Let's praise God for how he's released us from the burden of sin. Would you be free?
couple things before we go. First of all, yeehaw. Uh, secondly, uh, after the service, uh, we'd love to pray with you. If there's anything going on in your life, big or small, our prayer team is here. Kathy's here. The elders are here. They'd love to just uh, pray about anything going on in your life. Even if you don't know them, don't be shy. Just come up and say, hey, my name's so-and-so. Could you pray for whatever it is? And they'll do that confidentially. Then come downstairs for coffee, sign up for the Labor Day picnic, and get some info on the new couples class that's starting. And now, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us to see the preciousness and the beauty of Christ. Help us to see the surety of Christ. Lord, this world is constantly telling us that Christ is just for weak people, but the real action is in career, money, whatever. God, I pray that we would put our faith completely in Christ. And that as we see the preciousness of of His blood, the power of His name, that we might go boldly into this world and be willing to be scoffed at, be willing to be laughed at. But God, I pray we continue to be bold because we know there's other people out there who aren't scoffing. They're searching. They're asking questions. They're wondering. And Lord, those are the ones to whom you're sending us to speak. So God, help us to speak the name of Christ boldly, passionately, and kindly this week as you give us opportunity. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.